0: You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker.
1: This
2: is Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, we have specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. From the very beginning, we have been family-owned and family-run. Our tents have become the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers all over the world and especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who demand utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, our tents are made in Europe, built to last and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use and remarkable comfort.
0: Hi everyone, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal. The A.J.'s title sponsor for 2019 is Black Diamond Equipment. And if you're wondering what BD gear to stock up on this winter, check out their ultralight ice screws. These screws have an aluminum body with a durable steel tip, making them about 45% lighter than the legendary Express screws. They come in four sizes, and if you act fast, you can save 20% on the ultralight ice screw through next Monday, December 2nd. Find them at BlackDiamondEquipment.com. In this episode, we travel to the Pamir-Alai Mountains of Kyrgyzstan for a special two-part show. In late August, four American climbers, Dave Alfrey, Nick Berry, Eric Bissell, and Brent Bargan, completed the first free route up a huge wall in the Aksu Valley, the northwest face of Peak Slesaba. The line they followed was partly along an old Russian route, which was also shared by a previous American line, the Russian Shield, put up by Conrad Anker and Alex Lowe back in 1995. The new free line went at 513A, with eight pitches of 512 or harder. To get the story, I spoke with Nick Berry and Eric Bissell, who were both in Yosemite Valley, where they had just done a team-free ascent of Pineapple Express on El Cap. By the way, Nick has now done six El Cap free routes, putting him right up there with a certain Alex Huber. At the end of the show, I chat with Conrad Anker about that 1995 route and how he feels about modernizing mountain routes for free climbing. But first, here's Nick and Eric. Well, let's, let's talk about Kyrgyzstan. So Nick, this was more or less your idea, right? You, you were there once before with Madeline Sorkin in, in what year?
2: I went there with Madeline in 2012 because she really wanted to go and had heard about it from friends and heard about the amazing rock quality, the size of the walls, which are all um, somewhere around like 3,000 to 4,500 feet tall and pretty close to El Cap quality stone most of the way. We actually went out to climb um, this route, the Russian Shield. But we only had about 10 bolts and we went up the first two pitches and noticed that there was, you know, a ton of bolting that needed to happen in order to make it possible. So we uh, wrote it off that trip and looked at other things.
0: Mm -hmm. And you climbed on that trip, though. You did some other stuff.
2: Yeah, we did uh on the right side of uh Peaks Leslova, there's a really classic route called Perestroika crack that's uh pretty sought after. Um and we did a route that's like a shares a little bit of the beginning and then comes back into the end of it. Um we called it Lafayama or or it was Lafayama was the aid route and we uh we freed it in a pretty still like maybe one of my more proud moments because we did it ground up on site in like the in the Alpine there. So and there were some pretty real like run out pitches that we had to deal with. So it was pretty cool.
0: So so Peaks sova it's also I, I think people also call it the Russian Tower. It's uh what about forty two hundred meters or a little more, just under fourteen thousand feet. What face are we talking about that the Russian shield is on?
3: We wouldn't get sun until about probably noon on the wall. Yeah, one. Yeah. Um, I would say it's it's kind of like the the north-northwest face, probably. Like Nick was saying, Perestroika is on the, the same formation, and Perestroika and La Fiama, the route that Nick and Madeline did, is a little bit more on kind of this skyline rib ridge where the rock is a little bit slightly lower angle, I guess, in the first half. Um, and then the whole formation kind of wraps around to the North wall and, and gets a bit steeper on the,
0: the North face. Mm-hmm. And and how high is that face that sort of North or Northwest face?
3: When we repelled it, we kept pretty good notes and I think we figured it was 3,100 feet. Um, so it's a proper, proper L cap wall.
0: So do you know what Slisova means? Peak Slisova?
3: No. No, and we
2: thought it was someone's name. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: Sounds like way too much research.
0: <laughs> well, Nick, I'm going to pause here because I decided to do some research. I reached out to Anna Pianova, editor of the Russian website Mountain.ru, to find out more about this mountain's name. Turns out it was named for Ivan Slesov, a much-loved climber from the Russian city of Rostov, who died in 1979. When a team from Rostov put up a new route on this face about a decade later, the mountain was just called Peak 4240. They decided to name it after Slesov. Anna also informed me that we've been mispronouncing the name throughout this interview. It should be something like Peak Slesova. So there you go. Did you sort of know all along that you wanted to go back? Or was this sort of just something that popped up more recently and thought, wow, maybe I'll go back?
2: Yeah, so this has kind of been in my mind for a really long time, and I always knew I wanted to return. Um, but looking up at the wall, I was always intimidated by it, knew it was going to be really hard. Um, and most of the intimidation came from the thought that I was going to, there was going to be a lot of necessary hard aid climbing. And so I kind of needed, I knew I had to have the right team for it. Um, and a lot of what spurred this trip from happening this past summer was um dave alfrey aka zaddy um came in and he was just really amped up to uh go on this trip because he was he just actually had a child in early october and so this was kind of his uh what we hailed dave's magnificent uh baby shower and uh i yeah i just knew that you know after this point that I might not be able to have Dave along, which he was a pivotal, um, component for this trip just because of his incredible eight climbing skills. Um, and yeah, then Eric, um, is obviously an incredible free climber and, um, just really good on walls in general. Um, and, and then Brent, um, we wanted, um, some more just like a bigger team just cause it was such a big objective and big wall and would require so much work. Um, we thought two teams of two would be really beneficial for efficiency sake. And, uh, yeah, Brent was a great addition to the team. Um, but yeah, so it essentially just came together because timing was essential, um, for it to happen last summer. The timing of getting this team together that you wanted to,
0: to have for this climb exactly yeah Mm -hmm. what is the approach to these mountains like where do you start and and how long does it take to get in there
2: um well we flew into osh which um yeah was like a pretty crazy story in and of itself from multiple flight cancellations because everything was going through jfk and there was this horrible storm so all of our flights got canceled one day Um, so yeah, we flew from there to Moscow and then into Osh. Um, and then we would stay at a hostel, um, for one night and then drove seven hours, um, into Uzgurush, um, which is at the base of, um, the, um, Kershin mountains there. Um, the previous time, um, we went, the situation was a little bit better between the, uh, Tajik people and the Kyrgyz people. And so there was a passage where it was only a day and a half hike. But since then, times have changed and some a trekker was actually um, killed um, from one of the border crossings. And so now you have to do a three-day trek, which is like pretty extreme. It was just, you know, you go up one 4,000 foot pass down 3,000 feet up 3,000 feet down for 3,000 feet. <laughs> it was pretty horrendous three-day trek. But absolutely gorgeous. But we were all pretty toasted by the time we got to our base camp. Now, are you
0: using uh, horses or porters or something to carry your gear over all those passes?
2: Uh, Yeah, it was all uh, donkeys, actually. And then a few horses. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. I think we had like six horses and five donkeys.
0: Yeah. Now, when many people... Think of this area, the Kharavshin or Kyrgyzstan. They're going to remember the kidnapping of Tommy Caldwell, Beth Rodden, John Dickey, and Jason Smith in in 2000. And this was the same general area where those guys were kidnapped. And obviously that was a long, long time ago. But what what has happened in the sort of two decades since then to make this area safer to visit? And and did you feel it was safe?
2: Yeah, I think it's um, a lot of tourism like there's a, it's a huge tourism uh, economy there for trekking and for climbing um and so it seems like these companies are putting quite a bit of effort into like maintaining you know safety and making sure that's a priority and it was a huge from going there in 2012 versus coming this past season there's a massive difference in um just how like smooth, it was logistically, like there were no hiccups. And then, you know, like I said, like, you know, if there, an incident happens, they kind of have like created these paths around it so, like, you can still be navigating the train with, um, you know, totally safe. And the people are incredible. They're the locals were all so nice and, um, so warm and welcoming and they would all come and chat with you. And, um, yeah, I, th- it, it was a really nice experience in that way. And I, 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 don't think any of us really ever felt threatened at all.
3: No, That's I mean, it was, one, it was one of the safest feeling international trips I've ever taken. I mean, I think the, um, even when we were in the cities and especially when we were in the cities, just, uh, people were so friendly and, um, and we would be walking down the street and we obviously stood out a bit. Um, nobody hassled us or even was trying to like haggle to us to come over to their stand or any uh, people were just so relaxed and in their element um, that it was a really comfortable place to, to travel. I do remember being up on the wall and looking down at one point and, and i uh, being like, Oh wow, I guess this is like, I guess Tommy and Beth were probably running around like in this in this valley right here right below us um not that long ago actually and um it hit me as such a surprise because it was just so far from from what we were thinking about at that time we were just out there climbing and it was gorgeous and beautiful and the sh- the shepherds would come over and share meals and um and there were I think You were saying, Nick, that maybe you saw one other party the last time you were there in 2011. And this time we probably saw over the course of the month, maybe 25 climbers come through the Aksu and we weren't even in the Karasu, which is the more
0: popular valley. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the route then. So you're in base camp and you're looking up at this thing. Tell me about the Russian Shield and, you know, why this line and it sounds like there's sort of a complex history of this, of this route.
2: Um, yeah, it was, um, a variation was originally done by Conrad. Conrad. Anker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after I,
3: and Alex Lowe,
2: right? Yeah. Uh huh. And, uh, so after Madeline, and I went there the first time I, I saw Conrad at the OR show and asked him if, um, he'd be open to letting us put some bolts in it if necessary to make it free climbable. And, Conrad's always into you know creating quality routes for the future, and like he's you know a total visionary, obviously, and sees that climbing is going in a free climbing direction. Um, so he's he's always on board, which I think is uh, totally commend him for. And uh, Eric DeCaria went out there, and he went up, he ropes soloed um, the first two pitches. And, you know, he's obviously has an incredible vision of free lines and is an incredible climber. Um, and he, he always thought that that line would go, um, and then, uh, yeah, so that kind of all kind of got the wheel turning and, uh, momentum going in like, a uh, you know, and creating that possibility that it would be a really nice free route. How, um,
3: how did the
0: old
2: anchor low route vary from the original Russian route? Do you know?
3: So we were, yeah, we were in base camp looking up at the wall and there's no, there's no drawn topo of the Russian shield that we could find. Um, we didn't know, we were just looking up there trying to spot what basically what would, what feature would cause them to call it the Russian shield. So we were (laughs) looking for the shield of LCAP basically and, um, and I think we I think in base camp, we kind of narrowed in on this one portion that we figured was was where they split off from the original line. Um And and we don't know. I mean, there could have been pitches down low that were also variations, but there was a pretty there was a pretty obvious location where the original route jogs left and where the Russian shield um would likely have stayed straight and gone up these headwall cracks basically. Um, mm-hmm. So we got up to where we thought the two routes diverged and um and I it was my pitch I led up and um started to tension traverse and pingy out and you kind of have to do these um tension traverses around the corner to get this is when we're still aid climbing and and scouting so um, we're doing little pendulums and getting over to what we figured was the Russian shield. And I got to the base of it and it was just a a total seam seamed out, butt crack, um, beak seam. And so there was nothing we could, we, we looked at that and we, we knew pretty quickly that it wasn't going to go free up the Russian shield. And, And so that was kind of a turning point where we decided to stick with the original route and, uh, and, and let the Russian shield be for another, another generation.
0: Right. Okay. So did you actually ever talk to the Russians who put up that original route? Um, and do you know, you know how they would feel about adding bolts to it? Um,
3: yeah, I mean, that, that's, I'll let you go too, Nick on this one, but, um, but we did not talk to the to the Russians that that put up the original route. Um, I think it was 1985 that that original route went up, um, and we were we were definitely a little nervous about adding bolts to it uh, initially, and um, and as we climbed higher on the route, it became really pretty clear that. Um, there wasn't a significant effort to avoid bolts on the on the part of the first ascent party um mm. there were bolt ladders I and would
2: say no effort bl-
3: pretty much zero <laughs> effort um where there weren't bolts there were bat hook holes drilled all over the place, so we mm. um i mean not to you know downplay their ascent it it was a and an awesome route and we enjoyed repeating it and mostly Dave cause he was our aid aid rope gun. Um, but it wasn't, uh, I would, we, we replaced some of the Russian bolts. We added a couple, we added our, our free climbing bolts. We added a couple belay bolts. Um, but I don't think that we significantly changed the character of the, of the original route by adding the free climbing bolts that we did mm-hmm
2: yeah mo- most of our bolts were slight variations to the where the the free climbing would um be your left or right out of the crack system um and honestly i think a lot of there was these off widths that were just a hundred percent bolted um and you know we didn't We, we would just clip the bolts, but they were these, uh, nails just driven into the rock with old aluminum, like bed frame,
0: um, angle iron. Mm -hmm. How many, how many bolts do you think you, you put in, in the end? Uh,
2: quite a few because the first two pitches were pretty much all, um, face climbing. So Mm -hmm. I think our, our whole count was 70. Okay. And then we, we added good anchor bolts and everything so people could repel the route and things as well. And we, you know, we, mm-hmm. our goal was not to be proud and create a line for only ourselves to ascend in like a very remote Alpine area. We wanted to, the goal of the trip was to put up a route that somebody could show up on the ground, have a very reasonable ground up on site attempt that was safe. And, uh, and with you know a really nice route to climb. And so um I think all of us FDN were very satisfied with us accomplishing that goal. Yeah, I think
3: cool. I, I think like Nick said, I mean at the certain point with routes like this or any time on first ascents, it's you're making that judgment call as you're sussing the route maybe on the first pass when you're aid climbing up it and you start climbing on it a little bit and um and you're you're kind of making a, a a judgment as to the quality of the route and um and I think we were figuring out in the very early on by pitch 4 that we were climbing on a route that was going to be a really spectacular free route and um even though we were going to have to add bolts especially to the first two pitches because there's no crack systems for the first two pitches so they were going to be entirely bolted um we we knew that um that the quality of the climbing was on a certain level going to justify having to to add bolts to this mountain um so it felt like um we were making that kind of call and it had been a poor quality route. I
0: don't know if we would
3: have been willing to put in as many bolts
0: as, as we did. Um, Right. Right. Now it was also, I think it was the first free route up this face. Is that correct? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. So, I mean, there's the, there's that famous perestroika crack around to the right and, and other And other routes that have gone free yours, Nick, but on the Northwest face, there were other existing routes, but none of them had been free climbed, right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so it was pretty cool to put up the first because it's such a sustained, steep, beautiful face, you know, that's so obvious. That's the kind of face more or less that you look at from base camp. So, yeah, it was really cool to go after
0: that one. Right. And I, and I read that you ended up calling the route the American way and in part because there was a French team there and they described you guys, and I'm going to quote here as having elaborate tactics and singular focus. So yeah. elaborate. <laughs> what what, 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 <laughs> what were your, <laughs> what were your tactics for this route?
2: Uh, you know, just typical American things like micro tractioning and, uh, um, yeah, just swing around, not, not. Really going after any of the other area classics? I guess I I felt a little better about that because I had been <laughs> there
1: already and done some. But
2: yeah, you know, just like we we pretty much just approached it just like a you know Yosemite, you know, route on El Cap or something, and you just like go and you do one thing and then you leave, you know.
0: Yeah. And uh, did you, did you have to acclimatize first, or did you just just start working on the route right away? No,
3: Nick got his acclimatization.
0: Uh, out of the way on the hike in by
3: throwing up through day three um, (laughs) because he came (laughs) he came straight from from sea level from san francisco Um, i came from from jackson in the tetons so i um, pretended to do some acclimatization out there and and then uh out in salt lake which gives him a little heads up and then uh i don't know why dave was acclimatized because he's Dave Alfrey and he's a, a yeah.
2: boss. Yeah, that beautiful hair gives him some <laughs> sort of extra protection. It takes in oxygen.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what were the tactics then? Did so you start by aiding? Um, did you divide into teams? Uh, you know, how did you approach it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that the tactics. It's one of the more interesting things of of going out and doing a route like this. It was very important to. I would say primarily to Dave, um, that we climb the original route before changing it in any way. Um, so like before we added any, (laughs) any kind of bolts, um, he wanted to repeat all of the aid pitches, which I think was a, a nice kind of homage to the route and to make sure that, um, we were, uh, kind of matching the ante of, of that original route. And so we went and we had probably about, I would say we had about 1500 feet of static line and, um, and a full aid rack and, and also our free shoes. And we worked our way up the wall, um, each day pushing the the ropes a little bit higher Um, kind of by any means necessary Um, and then coming back down the lines and and descending down to base camp um, each night and staying down there and we did that up until we got to the halfway point on the wall where there was a, a really big ledge that we could see from from the valley from base camp And we had set that kind of as our goal, um, to make it to that point. And then we would, once we got to there, we would ascend our lines and, or we would red point the lower pitches working our way up and then, uh, commit to three days on the wall to, um, to go to the top of the formation from there. So,
0: and and what's the weather like? Are, Are you, it's a North, I mean, you're probably, you're not getting sun till late mid afternoon or early afternoon. Are you in Are you in t-shirts or puffies or what's it like on the wall? Yeah,
2: it was cold. It was really cold. It was, it was, was that was a substantial difference in last time versus this time too. the the two different trips. Um, Madeline and I had incredible weather. It literally snowed for half a day and it was just a flurry. And the rest of the time we were climbing in t-shirts a lot. Um, and this time it was cold it was windy it was snowing all the time it was almost on like a 3 day schedule it would be you know sunny cloudy stormy sunny cloudy stormy almost you know all the time and so yeah it was it was difficult to free climb because we were always so cold and just wearing all of our clothes while
3: while climbing which was uh, for me I'm more of a warm weather climber and it was uh it was a, a different experience to be wearing, you know, a T-shirt, a base layer and another R1 and then an insulated layer above that and then a, a windshell. And and so you're wearing these kind of Michelin man costumes trying to um, trying to free climb up there on some tenuous terrain. And that was kind of an experience in its own right.
0: So you say you, you fixed ropes up to about. 1500 feet up to this big ledge. Did you climb above that in this sort of first round on the, on the wall or was it obvious that above there you were probably going to be able to move a little quicker and go for the summit? I mean, was most of the effort then on this, the first half of the wall?
2: Yeah, most of it. There was one big question mark. Once we got up to, um, I think it was pitch 11 called the, what we called the white block. Um, And it was this big corner system we it, it ended up being like all these flakes and like really loose climbing and this one flake Eric was actually the leader but it had detached and was um leaning back over the route and all of us all of our our camp up there and so Eric was like oh I don't want to touch this so he came down and uh we pioneered this really cool i'll just let eric talk about it because it was all his his doing
3: yeah it was um it was kind of this terrifying surreal experience going up and up into this upper corner like nick was saying and then there's this 30 foot tall um detached flake that's leaning out from the wall and i'm standing there underneath it and Dave's belaying me and it's the obvious way up this corner system that was kind of the last hurdle before we got onto the lower angle, sort of top third of the route. And, um, and I remember looking up at it and staring at it long enough that I thought I could see it kind of blowing in the wind slightly and kind of (laughs) exhaling and inhaling. And so, um, it was uh it was pretty spooky. If it's something that's on LCAP or on a on a more popular route, you you have some indication of whether or not someone else has been through there before and 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 maybe some beta about, about some flake or something or oh yeah, we pull on that one and it's actually it's more bomber than it looks, or whatever it is. And and in this kind of terrain you have zero um outside resources to rely on so you're just looking up at it and trying to make a judgment call and nick and brent are making dinner down on white block and i just didn't really feel like it was worth putting all of us in jeopardy so i i uh repelled from below there i got lowered left a nut and then um and then we saw this amazing dike down climb um which was kind of perfect because keeping with our yosemite theme we figured there should probably be a some sort of difficult funky down climb on the route and (laughs) uh and we were able to do that with one bolt and um it was this really cool uh maybe like only a 60 foot pitch or something like that but ended up being this really neat down climb pitch out onto the uh onto the lower angle face. So we kind of rounded the corner and then, and then Nick took it from there and, and uh we handed the reins over to Nick. And I think, I think at that point it had been like a day and a half, maybe since uh you'd gotten to lead Nick. And so we handed the rope over to him and all of a sudden, like these 70 meter pitches started going up, um, <laughs> you know, on site and and climbing into the upper wall and, um, that's when things started
0: to go a lot faster. Um, mm-hmm. so how long did you spend on that initial section then before you went for sort of the push to the top? Ooh, that was probably at least a week and a half to
2: two weeks.
3: Yeah. Maybe two weeks on the bottom half. We, we probably spent like a week and a half, um, kind of pushing the ropes up and aid climbing and swinging around and looking for free passage. And cause we did have to establish a couple of variation pitches and, and then, um, and then once we had kind of prepped the lower portion, we, um, we went back to base camp and then uh, we red pointed from the ground to the top of four and then went back to base camp. Jugged to four, pitch four, and then we red-pointed from pitch four to uh, the top of eight. And then we got snowed off the wall, went back to base camp, came back up, and then went from eight to white block bivy, which is pitch 11. Stayed on white block for two nights and, and climbed to the top from there. So, so there
0: never was sort of a, what you would call like a, a, a single push free ascent
2: yeah yeah we definitely left some serious low-hanging fruit as far as improvements on style on this route which (laughs) which all of us have a lot of qualms about and we're still like wait what did we do but uh (laughs) it's just you know you have to like do what you can with like the weather you've been given the you know you're on this like really remote trip and you're just like well you know, this is kind of our only option. Um, all of us being, you know, Yosemite people where in a day attempts or the the kind of crumb of the crop, it's a little hard for us to swallow. But uh, going back to, like, the goal of the trip and just wanting to put up a really good, amazing free route that was repeatable from the ground up and was safe um, with that being the priority um you know i think we we still did okay yeah
3: yeah i think there were there were t- two moments also that um influenced our style and one was we were having dinner with the frenchies who had a camp next to us in base camp and um they expressed an interest in going up and repeating the route after we had finished it and so f- kind of from that point on it became less about just sort of us getting, getting tagging the summit. And um, we all got really excited about creating something that the French team could go up basically right after we were done and give it a really good effort from the ground. And then secondly, we were, I mean, it's kind of with four climbers who I think Any one of us maybe could have done the route, but um, it would have come at a cost of everyone on the trip and kind of team morale to put any one person's like continuous in a day, you know, no falls ascent above kind of this thing that was split equally between all four of us. And I think we walked away with feeling like, we all contributed and we all got to lead our lead pitches. And, um, I don't know. I think there, there's something mm-hmm. kind of special about just, um, really feeling like it was a shared ascent among the four of us and really embracing that team free.
2: Yeah. And I think the team component was so cool. Cause like we didn't really care. None of us cared who led each pitch. We just wanted the pitch to be done by one of us, you know? And so like, we would all work on the pitch and we would all like put that effort into it. It was this really cool kind of, you know, unselfish way of just like letting the route be done, you know? Um, and then I, I don't think any of us had ever really experienced that before, but it was, it was unique and it was cool in its own way for sure. Were
0: you all able to tag the summit?
2: Yeah, yeah, we all we all had a summit photo where we were super worked on top and uh yeah, we made that happen.
0: Did you have to take like boots and snow and ice gear up the route or were you able to go to the top? No,
2: and, luckily uh... uh it was wet up there and it was snowing <laughs> when we summited at like ten o'clock at night. But uh um yeah, we 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 didn't have to do any of that, which which I felt very good about because I, I gave everyone a heaping amount of shit prior to going on the trip when everyone was like, oh, we need boots and uh, crampons and an ice axe. And like, I've seen snow on the summit. And I was like, I assure you all, we do not need these things. Nick's direct <laughs> uh... quote
3: was, it's just like Yosemite in November. And uh, it's now it's now November yeah. in Yosemite, Nick. And I think today's high is 75 degrees. Yeah,
2: so it's... <laughs> I'm still putting my foot in my mouth. <laughs>
0: You you mentioned that uh you got inspired to sort of do the work for the French team that was your neighbors. Did they end up getting up on the route?
3: Yeah, they did. And um I mean it's it was so awesome um that they that they did because it's you just get to enjoy the route all over again when someone else goes and and does it. And they um uh the guy who wrote me was just raving about it and said that it was um, you know, the best, the best granite route he'd ever done and inspired him to go and, and try and establish more routes. And so it was pretty, it was pretty fun to hear that, um, right after coming home and right as they got back to France.
0: After we stopped recording this interview, I realized I'd forgotten to ask Nick and Eric if they had used a power drill on their climb. Turns out they did, but not their own. When they got to Kyrgyzstan, they'd plugged in their drill to charge it, but they forgot to use a converter for the higher voltage. The drill was ruined. Fortunately for them, an Italian team in base camp was happy to lend them a drill to protect the bottom pitches, which needed the majority of the bolts for this line. The route's crux, pitch two, is named the Italian job. Not all climbers are happy with the idea of adding bolts to existing routes in the mountains. But one climber who isn't bothered by it is Conrad Anker, he climbed a major variation of this route in 1995. I checked in with him to get his recollections of that climb. So Conrad, you climbed Peak Losova, the Russian tower in 1995 with Alex Lowe. And this was part of a large North Face expedition to the area. Uh, did you have this line in mind when you went to Kyrgyzstan or did you choose it on site? H- how did you, how did you end up climbing this particular line on the Russian
1: tower? We had a general overview of the peaks in the valley, but we didn't have specific routes, which ones to do. So we came with a bunch of climbing gear and chose the appealing and most beautiful line that we could find and started climbing. And there
0: were some earlier Russian climbs on this wall. Did you know about these or know the history of them or know, you know, where your line would go in relation to them? Or we? sort of just following your noses?
1: The first non-Soviet-era expedition in there was a French team from the high mountain guides. And they were there two years before we arrived. We'd gotten some of the information from them. But once we arrived there, and what we might have thought, oh, there's lots of unclimbed routes and peaks around there, was very extensively climbed by the Russian climbers and, um, the Kyrgyz climbers at the time, they had been part of it. Prior to Perestroika in 89, the Soviet Union had climbing and alpinism as a state recognized sport, and they supported it. They had a gradation system. If you were the top level, you'd climb the 7,000 meter peaks in the, uh, and in in and around the Caucasus and the Palmyra's places like that, you were awarded the snow leopard. Part of the way they looked at the mountains was that they would assemble a team and they would identify the peak then they would identify the route. They would identify the number of pitches where the belay stances would possibly be, how much gear they would use right down to the bolt count. If they're going to place bolts. And then when they came back and their route, matched up what their planning had said, then that was part of the gradation system for it, which was um, pretty interesting because it puts into it the logistics and planning aspect. That's very much a part of alpine climbing. We all are familiar with it, but it codified it and where we're usually like, Oh, there's a route and let's double set of cams and 10 pitons and 40 carabiners. Let's see how far this gets us. Whereas um, here they, they really, that structured planning, which was very much a part of their society, was built into the how they recognized the climbing routes. Hmm.
0: And and did you see evidence of their climb on the on the route that you ended up following?
1: Yeah, at the start of it, it was lower angle, so we were on the apron, and then it got steeper. The shield itself was uh, reminiscent of the shield in Yosemite, and that was hence the name for it. But um, yeah, we would see. Some of the uh, equipment they had, a lot of it was um, improvised, cross-pollinated uh, from the industrial use. Um, when you follow a route that someone else has done, you see the craftsmanship that they've put into it, where their um, where the belay stances are. All those things sort of come into play.
0: You told me earlier that uh, you thought maybe that some of this these old titanium pitons were made from you know sort of ex-military parts and things like that.
1: On the first trip that Alex and I went to in ninety in nineteen ninety three to Kyrgyzstan, and we did the speed climbing, we were the the reward or the the prize was titanium ice screws and pitons, and they um, they don't stick in the rock quite as well as chromoly or soft iron pitons, but um, they were always seem to be sort of cross pollinated from military or industrial uses and (laughs) so there was sort of maybe some overflow under the old um, the centralized economy and and so the climbers that were working in the factory were like oh this might be a good plea piece and it might be a a component for a refrigerator or um the word on the titanium ice screws that they were sort of a they were part of the the structure for soviet submarines who knows? <laughs> that's just urban legend, but it, it certainly made for good talking points as you whirled one in. Um, yeah. <laughs> and to their credit, they really, I mean, we had these, remember the old funky Chouinard screws with the braced on threads and no one ever thought to sharpen them. And you had to bring a special ice hammer to bit and brace and twerk them in. And it was like this full labor. And it, 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 so the Soviets came out with the first sharp Really easy to place ice screws. And they're also the first ones to have the, uh, the little coffee grinder knob on there that, that accelerated the placing of it. So, um, a lot of innovation from, uh, the, uh, the Soviet, Russian, um, East European climbers and the uh, Belikov thread, um, cams, a lot of these things that, um, even though they, for the period of the, the Soviet times, they were, isolated from the rest of the world. They didn't have as much interaction, say, as a a continental climber from Europe or Switzerland, Austria, Germany might have with a climber from Canada or United States or Argentina or Chile, where we cross-pollinated through climbing exchanges that um, they were still advancing the sport. Mm -hmm. This climb only got a few sentences in the 1996
0: AAJ, uh your climb with alex it probably should have gotten more given the size and the beauty of this line and uh you know this was obviously a long time ago but do you remember any highlights any memories of the climb itself really stand out for you
1: oh it was um we we're excited to get up there and just sort of happy to to be together and and always joking with each other so that was always uh the human interaction is is always uh the lasting memory on that but uh, the highlight was seeing this crack both Alex and I had climbed the shield in Yosemite and to see something that had that same geologic characteristics of a thin steep crack um, that hadn't been climbed and so using uh aid climbing techniques to to climb it was a real treat and to sort of to 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 pay homage to Yosemite, but then also to recognize the Russian route on the tower was uh it was a lot of fun that's cool. there was bivou- bivouac ledges on it, so we didn't take a portal ledge and we just sort of sat on the edge and brewed up and it was um yeah i I wish I had more more insight. I didn't draw a topo from it and um so all of you young climbers out there listening to this <laughs> document your climbs when they're this like this and you'll have something to think about when you're in your 50s so
0: <laughs> so the
1: americans who who free climbed this wall
0: this year climbed to what they think was the the sort of the meat of the russian shield line and they found just tiny seams on a blank wall they didn't really think it could ever be free climbs even with lots of bolts and so they went elsewhere but I think they talked to you before going to Kyrgyzstan and asked what you'd think about adding bolts to your line for free climbing. And I just wondered what your thoughts are about changing routes, you know, old routes in the mountains to make them sort of sort of more free climbable in this modern era.
1: Yeah. Great question. I'm fine with it. And times change the way we look at protection has changed and the, um, Free climbing being the highest standard of climbing and the most pure. If it requires a few bolts, then I'm not upset about it. I don't get worked up and it's, um, it's a, it's a difference of uh, opinion, but the, uh, doing something on site from the ground up with a minimal amount of gear is, that experience is there for the first ascensionist and then everyone else has to, um, sort of abide by it. And if you look in 12 E meadows up till about 12 a, which was the standard back in the eighties, that was, um, super run out, super bold. And then at that level, then it things become a little more reasonable by today's standards. So, um, enjoying the experience and, and making it uh, passable for free climbing is – I wouldn't – I'm not going to be a moralist about it and say, no, you can't add to the route. So, <laughs> flexible. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, you know, if, if I'm not mistaken, this is one of the first big expeditions you did with your, your great friend Alex Lowe. And then, you know, he died in an avalanche just four years later. Does this, when you look back, does this trip seem sort of like a particularly poignant memory for you, or is it just one of many climbs that you two did together?
1: We had climbed in Kyrgyzstan '93 on that speed climbing thing on Kontengri, so that was our first time overseas, and that was uh, we had a good time. But this was it was a great expedition. Other expeditions I'd been on with Alex so it was just the two of us, a very specific goal. And coming to set up a base camp and then having a, a team of climbers in a three-week window to go do the climbs was good fun. And that was um, sort of this this newer approach to climbing in the mountains where you share a base camp and you're more flexible on your objectives, mm-hmm. depending on conditions and your temperament and your your fitness, things like that. Um, and hopefully the permitting agencies in the Himalaya follow with that because they're always like, well, you have a permit for the southeast ridge of X mountain and you cannot stray from that. But if you get there and you realize it's not in shape, it's threatened by a Serac, do something else. And sort of that, that um, the same mindset that we'd approach a vacation in the Sierras or the Canadian Rockies would, we can now apply that to the greater ranges. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, thanks, Conrad. Do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, the highlight of it was getting a text from Dave Alfre when he was like, hey, I found a hex deep in the back of the chimney that, that had, uh, had belonged to Alex and I. And he just thought it was, it was a classic little timestamp of passage of time, so to say.
0: You can find a topo and photos of the American Way route on Peaks Slesova at the Cutting Edge website. I should add that the Russian route that both American teams followed in part is called the Moros route. I hope I pronounced that right. It was put up as part of the Russian Mountaineering Championships in 1988, the same year Peak Slesova got its name. Thanks to Nick, Eric, and Conrad for sharing their stories, and to Black Diamond Equipment for co sponsoring this episode. This podcast is made possible by our lead sponsor, Hilleberg the Tent Maker. You can see all of their tents and order their unique catalog at hilleberg.com. If you're looking for a special gift this year for a friend who loves alpine climbing, consider giving the American Alpine Journal. We still have a few copies of the 2019 edition available. The 368-page book or the low-cost PDF edition are both available at shop.americanalpineclub.org. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs.